0: Good evening. It's my great pleasure as Dean of the Faculty of Social and Historical Sciences to introduce this evening's inaugural lecture. Jason PC will be talking to. The subject is up there on a nice bit of parchment, as you can see, um, with modern technology to show you it. So I think we're very much looking forward to that. Stephen Conway, the current head of the history department, will first of all introduce Jason, uh, and afterwards the vote of thanks will be made by Professor Michael Braddock, who has come from the University of Sheffield for the occasion. After the evening is over, or after the main part, the most important part of the evening is over, the lecture now, you're all very warmly invited to join us for a glass of wine or some other drink available in the South Cloisters downstairs, directly downstairs. So, welcome to UCL, welcome to this evening's inaugural. Good evening, everybody. Um, Inaugural lectures are red letter days, I think, in the academic calendar. They provide um, an opportunity for family, friends, colleagues, and students to celebrate the great achievement of promotion to a professorship. As head of department, I always take pleasure in introducing colleagues and friends who are about to deliver their inaugurals. Tonight, I feel particularly pleased to be introducing my deputy head of department and successor, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Professor Jason Peacy. Jason joined the department uh, as a lecturer in 2006 uh, after a spell as a research fellow in, at the History of Parliament Trust. He became a senior lecturer in 2009 and was promoted to professor last year. Despite his having had few opportunities to teach before he became a lecturer, he rapidly proved himself to be one of the best teachers in a department full of good teachers. He inspires his students, and the time and effort he puts into providing them with detailed feedback is truly exceptional. At undergraduate and master's level, his courses are immensely popular. He is also much in demand as a research supervisor where the same qualities of attentiveness and good judgment are much in evidence. His willingness to take on significant administrative or enabling roles demonstrates his collegiality, which I think is a very clear feature of Jason's uh, presence in the department. He's incredibly collegial. Outside the department, he serves on Editorial boards of three major scholarly journals in the department. He served as um, our admissions tutor, undergraduate admissions tutor, presiding over the first phase of our very substantial increase in uh, undergraduate numbers. And he's now serving as deputy head of department. And in that capacity, he mentors all of our uh, postgraduate teaching assistants. There's a small army of them. Um, besides helping me to set the course for the department as a whole. But this evening we are especially celebrating his scholarship, uh, which has been the key ingredient in his elevation to a chair. Um, Jason's first monograph, Politicians and Pamphleteers, Propaganda during the English Civil Wars and Interregnum, uh, was published in 2004. His most recent, print and Public Politics in the English Revolution appeared in 2013. These substantial books uh, are notable for their imaginative approach, their amazingly thorough trawl through a vast array of archives, and their engagement with issues that are still pertinent today. In addition, he's published a great number of articles in scholarly periodicals such as English Historical Review, Journal of British Studies, Historical Journal and Parliamentary History, and innumerable papers in collections of essays. He's incredibly productive. He's also edited or co-edited his own collections, including The Regicides and the Execution of Charles I, 2001, Parliament at Work, 2002, and Print Culture of Parliament, 1600 to 1800, 2007. Jason's scholarship encompasses parliamentary history, popular politics, print culture, and the history of communication. Above all else, he's an historian of 17th century England and its world. And as we're going to see this evening, um, his vision of English history is broadening to include its European context and connections. Uh, And I think that's probably my prompt to, to draw... To a close with my introductory remarks and ask Jason now to come up and deliver his inaugural lecture on plucked hens and principles, tackling Dutch politics in 17th century England.
1: Ruins the cut of the seat, this, doesn't it? Um, Thank you very much, Mary, and thank you very much, Stephen, that's very generous um, introductions, and uh, thank you all for coming. It's a kind of humbling experience to be here in front of so many people, Um, so many familiar faces, old friends and new friends. In Utrecht, the boys, having pulled a live hen and coursing it about the streets, were found to follow it in sport. So wrote the English ambassador at The Hague, Dudley Carlton, in 1618. Now, juveniles making sport with a plucked hen seems like one of those curious incidents where historians might struggle to get the joke and where they might be tempted to behave like anthropologists who encounter an alien culture for the first time. But for Carlton, however, um, the episode's meaning was perfectly clear. A picture of Dudley Carlton. Um, In coursing this featherless um, uh, creature about the streets, the boys, Gray gave out, he said, a cry of commiseration, (laughs) a ramen hum. Carlton recognized that this phrase, uh, literally, oh poor hen, involved punning wordplay and an allusion to the Arminian, a much talked about um, uh, and controversial religious faction which was sending shockwaves through Dutch society and indeed um, Europe as a whole, and which was even thought capable of threatening the very future of the Dutch Republic. Carlton recognised, therefore, that this was a piece of popular political carnival, a mocking comment upon recent developments which had halted the rise of this particular group. They're seen here um, being weighed in the balance and found wanting, if you like. So recent developments which had halted the rise of this particular group and an indication that the Armenian, being very lately proud of his plumes, as Carlton said, was now stripped so bare that he is subject to scorn. So what makes the, intri- the, the incident so intriguing is not the fact that Carlton got the joke Not the fact that he was able to discern its meaning, but the fact that he showed such an interest in this kind of piece of street politics at all. And my aim this evening is to establish why this should have been so. And to to use that incident and that thought and that interest to explore English perceptions of Dutch politics more broadly. What intrigues me about this episode is the issue that has inspired my research to date. Contemporary ideas and practices relating to what we might think of as the interaction between the state and the citizen. And how people negotiated the difficulties involved amid the upheavals of the 17th century. As a historian of of what we call political culture, I have studied government propaganda, as Stephen said, as well as political participation, but I'm currently concerned with showing how contemporary understanding in this area was informed by engagement with, and activities in, the world of European politics, rather than merely domestic affairs. My argument will be that historians have often misunderstood Anglo-Dutch relations in the 17th century. It is commonly assumed, therefore, that English attitudes towards the Dutch were marked by xenophobia, perfectly revealed here. Pause for laughter. Um, <laughs> so it's got to be assumed that English attitudes were towards the Dutch were marked by xenophobia, or at least jovial prejudice. The Dutch Republic being likened to the buttock of the world, full of veins and blood that have no bones in it, and Dutch people being portrayed as butterboxes, as here, um, whose spirits are generated from English beer, making them headstrong, and whose bodies were built of pickled herring, which made them testy. Such views appeared periodically, as stereotypes do, but it was most obviously at times of war that Englishmen described Holland as, this undigested vomit of the sea, um, or indeed exclaimed, by God, I think the devil shits Dutchman. (laughs) The story of Anglo-Dutch politics, meanwhile, has often been told um, in relation to diplomatic strategy and bloody conflict. In terms of the 1623 uh, uh, massacre depicted here, uh, a massacre of English merchants at ambona in modern Indonesia, as well as three wars, a fleeting triple alliance, the English conquest of New York and the Dutch invasion of England in 1688. It is tempting, in other words, to focus on economic rivalry, struggles for mastery in a Europe of dynastic states and the gradual emergence of a new world of sovereign states Um, after the Treaty of Westphalia depicted here um, uh, and the emergence of what is known as the Westphalia system. This is the stuff of traditional, political and diplomatic history. But it seems to be at odds with more recent emphasis on Anglo-Dutch cultural affinities, cultural exchange, to use the the, the language of of, of modern scholarship, where borders appear to contemporaries to have been less um, significant. Now it's into this territory, the apparently unbridgeable gulf between the political historian and the cultural historian that my talk um, seeks to venture by reconsidering the ways in which English politicians uh, tackled Dutch politics. In doing so, of course, um, I want to honor UCL's long-standing uh, commitment to the study of Dutch history um, and culture. And I want to reconnect British and European history I do so acutely aware of three things. My debts to many illustrious colleagues, uh, past and present, working in this field. The accusation that historians of Britain have been slow to direct their gaze to wider horizons, and recent moves to rectify this particular problem. Attempts have been made, therefore, to develop um, a cultural approach to diplomacy to trace changing attitudes towards the Dutch in English political discourse, and to demonstrate that foreign affairs, so-called, were actually integral to domestic politics. Such work has uh, has emphasised English fascination with, and even aberration for, Dutch society. And it is argued that the political and religious landscape of Europe uh, was central to the ways in which people thought about Britain. But my goal tonight is to focus much more obviously on attitudes within successive English regimes and to suggest that diplomacy was politically educative. Not just in enabling politicians to interpret the political activities that they encountered, but also in promoting new kinds of political practice, new ways of doing and new ways of seeing, not just in continental contexts. Sorry, not least in a continental context, sorry. I would argue that tackling um, Dutch politics, including popular politics, was a serious business. And that observing how the English responded to the processes and practices that they encountered reveals that contemporary politicians displayed an ability to engage with Europe in ways that are surprisingly positive, and constructive, and perhaps even instructive. So my first aim is to demonstrate that English politicians and diplomats were determined to understand what they would have called the genius of the Dutch people and the nature of the Dutch constitution. So the Dutch, therefore, were indeed by English politicians and commentators characterised as a strikingly equal nation of merchants, thrifty, industrious, cleanly, inventive. And profit was taken to be the rule of these men's affections. They were thought to be headstrong, jealous, naturally subtle, misbelieving, or at least not very devout. And if they were thought to be rather too prone to drinking, then they were also considered plain-dealing. More than one commentator reflected on the cold and muddy air, but it was said that this probably made heavy drinking appropriate. (laughs) And it also explained why the Dutch were so phlegmatic. In terms of their political predispositions, meanwhile, the Dutch were thought to be factious and passionate, and inclined towards liberty and freedom. Most observers were struck by their religious tolerance, although this was generally thought to be pragmatic in origin. As the merchant Edward Misseldon noted, Dutch toleration was, quote, by way of connivance for policy of state, to draw people and trades, to their countries. More significant are contemporary observations on Dutch political culture. Commentators were struck by the vibrancy of street politics, including the riotous rabble and disorderly crowds. Carlson noted that knives, as well as the pavements of the street, literally the cobblestones, were the usual weapons of their fury. And he and others recorded numerous episodes like the one with which I began. Many reflected on the political awareness of the common multitude in terms of tax revolts and insolent behavior towards public figures. In 1677, it was said that there was scarcely any intelligent person, even among the common people, that are uninterested in political affairs. Time and again, Moreover, the vibrancy of popular politics was linked to Dutch print culture. And it was said that every day, seditious pamphlets and labels were cast abroad to stir up the people. The upshot was that English diplomats felt compelled to monitor and comprehend popular discourse. Vulgar opinion and the sense of the people, as they called it, at the exchange on Dam Square, depicted here, the dam, as they called it, and in the coffee house. Indeed, this was prompted by awareness of the power wielded in Dutch politics by, quote, the voice of the people. And the Dutch were frequently described as free-spoken people who were prone to, to murmuring against magistrates and governors. So the public scandals, quote, fill both the pulpit and the piazza. It was understood, in other words, that A rude populacy doth swarm and bear sway. The English were aware, therefore, that the Dutch system was profoundly, if somewhat awkwardly, (laughs) Republican. And indeed, that the equality of spirits makes them fit for a democracy. This was a cause for real concern, however, and it was thought to engender confusion of affairs when things were handled in common. The chief defect, so described, of the Dutch system was thought to be that it was radically decentralized. Missildon, the merchant, noted that the States-General, the central decision-making body in The Hague, will never resolve anything that concerneth the seven provinces without their consent hereunto first had. And other English observers recognized that matters were routinely referred from the states general to the provincial states. And that the provincial assemblies frequently um, uh, uh, separated, Um, I went their own way, in order to refer matters to particular towns. As one guide to contemporary Dutch politics um, explained, the states general at The Hague represents the sovereignty of the government but with relation, nevertheless, to the opinion and advice of the provinces from whence they are deputed. For few of these deputies come authorised with a commission, but ever, in matters of consequence, fetch their vote from their provinces. The Republic was a place where, quote, almost every common man is a statesman, which ensured that resolutions are slow and heavy. English observers thus regularly found themselves bemused by the way in which, quote, the constitution of their government resulted in situations where deputies retired to consult with their principals who were explicitly referred to as their superiors to the end that their deputies may come at their next assembly with full instructions and power to resolve of all matters. So the constitution of this confederated commonwealth was thought to generate a range of more or less serious problems, not just in terms of government being being slow in motion, but also in terms of maintaining desirable levels of secrecy. Even proceeding by what they called plurality of voices, i.e. majoritarian principles, rather than unanimity, could not prevent, it was thought, frequent gridlock as individual provinces asserted their independence by refusing to accept decisions made in The Hague, especially when the magistrates and commonality, the common people in particular towns dug in their heels, and when deputies from particular provinces received a straight charge from their principals in terms of what position to take. In the end, therefore, English commentators felt that, quote, The multifarious government of this state made it, quote, hard to judge where the summum imperium, or sovereignty, um, is to be found. And hard to understand how this constitution, this state, was even sustainable. And a particularly good example um, of English bemusement regarding the Dutch system Involved observations on amazing scenes that occurred at Utrecht in 1610 when Burgesses rose in arms um, in the name of the commonalty, the common people, and demanded the appearance of their magistrates in order to remonstrate to them the grievances of the people. They then elected new magistrates to take their demands to The Hague and solicited other towns for support by posting and publishing seditious and scandalous libels. Eventually, the state's general mobilized the sizeable armed force which literally besieged the town in order to, quote, preserve and uphold their authority, which once trodden down with contempt and scorn, where a rude populacy doth swarm and bear sway, will never be raised. What struck English observers, indeed, was evidence of new and radical ideas that were beginning to emerge in such um, situations as people began to argue that, quote, not the states but the common people, the riffraff of that country, are the masters of the provinces. They are the greater part. They bear the burden of the imposts and taxes. They were the first that did shake off the yoke of Spain, i.e. the Dutch revolt. And in them the power doth consist to make the magistrate and to depose him, to call into an account for his carriage and comportment, in his office, and in consequence to alter, fashion, and settle the government of the state. Such ideas, it goes without saying, alarmed English politicians, who argued that the state's general needed to maintain their just power and authority, without which things must needs fall into a confusion and ruin. And an, an Ambassador... Uh, missing picture, sorry. Ambassador Winwood argued that small sparks like these cause oftentimes great fires. The most obvious danger, however, sprang from religious division. And reports abounded about tumults and uproars over the control of local pulpits as confessional disputes, fueled naturally by pamphleteering, led to violent confrontations. Involving, quote, a a multitude of women and mean people. Liables set up in diverse places, incited local youths to hunt out the Armenians in 1617. Resulting in a mob which blacked their faces, apparently, armed themselves with staves and stones and assaulted a local preacher. Another Armenian preacher was, quote, taken off by the people and dragged in a wheelbarrow round about the churchyard and some streets of the town until troops were mobilized to restore order. Preachers were stoned in their pulpits, riots ensued, people got killed, and such issues, quote, raiseth great noise amongst the people, always accustomed to an unbridled liberty." Moreover, in a situation uh, in which there was, quote, opposition of town against town, and division of towns amongst themselves, English observers found it hard to see how the states general would be able to maintain order, and feared that making decisions by plurality of voices could be exploited for factional purposes. They found it hard to comprehend why the issue of the church, and the future direction of the church, was, being treated, uh, was not being treated as a public matter of the whole state, thereby bringing it, bringing it within the remit of the states general in The Hague, and why it was instead left to the mercy of individual provinces to go their own way. They feared indeed that faction in the state and schism in the church would reach the point where all is like to come to confusion, leading not just to popular tumults, but also to the disunion, of the state. What seems clear, however, is that such interest in, this interest on the part of uh, uh, English um, observers, this interest in and this concern about the Dutch political system was more than merely scholarly and ideological. It was driven by a sense of how the Dutch constitution and the very viability of the republic would um, impinge upon the aims and ambitions of the English government. And this can be seen very clearly from English attempts to settle religious differences in the Dutch Republic. So it's well known that James I, in the early part of the 17th century, um, put pressure on the Dutch to remove controversial Arminian preachers like, the right slide, Conrad Vorstius, during the so-called Vorstius affair and to settle religious divisions at the Synod of Dort, 1618 to 19. So the English are very involved in persuading the Dutch to settle these religious divisions. Now this obviously reflected James I's interest in the religious ideas themselves, something of an intellectual, and his determination to take action against what he thought of as atheism and heresy. But it also reflected concern about the stability of the Dutch Republic, not least as part of wider geopolitical strategies. And here, indeed, the logic was clear. Religious division threatened to unleash the fury of the people and the insistence on provincial sovereignty, rather than the sovereignty of the states general, could lead the Dutch to disunite themselves. Most troubling of all was the risk that Dutch liberty and freedom could breed licentiousness and the ruin and subversion of their state, and then renewed subjection to Spain. But whatever the reasons for wanting to get involved in Dutch affairs, it is clear not just that such impulses made it necessary for the English to navigate a path through the Dutch political system, but also that the power of provincial states and popular opinion made effective intervention difficult. So they both want to intervene, but find it difficult to do so. So during the Vorstius affair, ah, there he is, Winwood. Um, During the Vorstius affair, Ambassador Winwood complained of tedious and wearisome delays, of much ado in the States General, and of long jangling in the States of Holland, which provoked much trouble both of body and mind, poor man. He also noted that the Dutch constitution meant that getting even straightforward things done was full of difficulty and danger, liberty being such a common cause. Local principals, principals being so powerful and individual provinces clinging so doggedly to their sovereignty. Similar frustrations emerged in the course of attempts to get justice for the victims of the Amboina massacre. Dudley Carlton referred to many evasions he encountered and he reported that the constitution of this state gave no way to celerity of proceeding in cases of such consequence. He eventually complained of my vexation of mind in this perpetual labyrinth of resolutions in these popular assemblies. Uh, One of his contemporaries, Sir Henry Vane, wrote of tedious and wearisome delays while Mistelden explained that things are so hard to be had in this government. Adding indeed that the state's general was swift to hear but slow enough to speak. After the restoration, um, ambassadors like Sir George Downing often referred to having received but words um, uh, rather than actions. Time and again, English ambassadors grumbled at how issues which they raised at The Hague were referred to the provincial states according to the constitution of their government. And that nothing could be expected, quote, until they received more express order from their principals. The fact that the sovereignty of provincial states remained still entire led Sir William Temple, one of the more astute observers of Dutch affairs, to reflect that this made it much harder to treat with them than with any other prince or princes. And this situation made it hard for ambassadors to know how best to proceed, and with whom it was most appropriate to deal. And although it was possible, therefore, to lobby the provincial assemblies rather than merely the States General, it also became clear that this kind of action would be thought highly inappropriate and might indeed breed jealousy and distrust on matters which were thought to affect all of the provinces. But this situation also raised problems in terms of secrecy. And in 1630, Sir Henry Vane complained about how the Dutch constitution had ensured that rather secretive and delicate proposals that he had made to the Dutch uh, in relation to uh, uh, Spain were immediately forwarded Uh, to the various provinces there to be communicated with their common councils. Indeed, such political openness often resulted in English diplomatic papers being printed um, for uh, commercial sale, much to the chagrin of English ambassadors. Sir William Temple was explicitly advised, therefore, that on certain issues that he wanted to pursue, it would be unwise to put in a memorial to the states general because of the danger of having it grow public. As often as not indeed, it was the desire to influence Dutch policymakers which made it imperative to understand the Dutch constitution. Successive ambassadors were instructed to gain an understanding of its structures and processes, not least to avoid giving offense. Although some of the more su- uh, astute ambassadors wished that these, uh, these things, this, this nature of the Dutch constitution, was a little better understood in England as well. As is general sense that most people in England have no clue um, what is going on. As such, it was, um, it was those most closely involved in dealing with the Dutch system on issues like the Amboyna massacre who provided the most searching analyses of the republic's constitution. Mistelden, um is amongst these. He recommended that people should read The Learned Grotius, of course, in order to understand how the Dutch government worked. He also detected that delays were done purposely to spin out time. And he also blamed the influence of the Dutch East India Company, their headquarters shown here, who now rule the states of Holland and thus the states general. The real problem that English ambassadors faced, in other words, was that merchants are here at this helm, and also that merchandise is here accounted a matter of state. Another report noted that these merchants were so mixed in the government that they had knit and so united to them all sorts of men of principal places. This made it quote, altogether impossible by any treaty or discourse or negotiation between his majesty and the states to bring a good end to the English. Worryingly, in other words, the shareholders of the Dutch East India Company were thought to represent, quote, a state within a state. Perhaps the most intriguing way in which English ambassadors experienced the Dutch system involved interventions, Um, uh, regarding the conduct of English men and English women who lived and worked um, in the United Province, thousands of them. Dealing with such people revealed very clearly that English governments had limited power and that their sovereignty um, um, was constrained. So my next goal is to just demonstrate how, why and how far it proved difficult to control the behavior of those whom the English government regarded as English subjects. Constrained sovereignty, as I'm calling it, could be explored in any number of ways, not least in terms of managing English um, regiments that were serving on the continent, restraining the arms trade, and monitoring how English fanatics, so-called, set up cloth working ventures in the United Provinces as vehicles for political agitation. But one issue that persisted throughout the 17th century involved English and Scottish churches and English and Scottish clerics in the Low Countries, and the activities of these ministers, including uh, chaplains to these said um, regiments. Here the English government recognized that it was scarce practicable to control for, sorry, for control to be exercised from England. And in 1621, James I agreed to the creation of a local synod or clerical council to oversee church government amongst this community. This effectively conceded that religious practices would be very different, religious practices um, of the English and the Scots in, um, um, in the Low Countries would be very different from those which prevailed in Britain even if the king merely sought to, quote, restrain abuses and punish disorders of life rather than to meddle in doctrine. The key problem involved the determination on the part of this English synod and these English and Scottish ministers to retain as much independence from London as possible. And it soon became clear that the ministers tended to to go as directly cross to the Church of England as a consistory can devise to go. Attempts were thus made to introduce an, an, an innovative hybrid of the English and Dutch liturgies in ways which were thought likely to breed a new sect, cause distractions and divisions, and be prejudicial to the English church government. This then provoked attempts by the English government to rein in um, uh, English preachers and Scottish preachers um, uh, uh, like John Forbes, who... It was said, will not abide the book of common prayer, nor use any set forms of prayer, nor celebrate the public administration of the church, nor pray for the king, as supreme governor of the church, but doth all things according to his own judgment and mind, both in doctrine and administration. As was so often the case, however, attempts to control wayward English subjects faltered because the Dutch government was reluctant to comply, not least by resisting English attempts to summon refractory ministers back to London. This was, as Ambassador Boswell made clear in the 1630s, a vexatious business, not least because he was confronted by the constitution of these states. And one major problem was that most English ministers were paid by the states, and so in their service, thereby removing them from English control. Boswell certainly expected that the Dutch would refuse to hand over particular English clerics because they hold it a prejudice to their independence. So John Forbes proved to be um, more or less untouchable, and he was eventually offered a lucrative living, a clerical living in Rotterdam with pensions from both the Dutch state and the town. That death uh, prevented him from taking up this position proved to be of small comfort. Moreover, because other dissident Puritans um, simply emerged and appeared into his place. Similar problems emerged in relation to other Puritanical preachers, like William Ames. Blurry. Um, a thorn in the side of the English government for over 20 years before his death in 1633. Here it was one thing to persuade his regimental commander to remove Ames from his chaplaincy, but it was quite another to prevent him from receiving a stipend from the Dutch government, to prevent him from securing university appointments in the Republic, and to prevent him too from taking up a preaching position in Rotterdam upon a pension promised by that town. The danger, in other words, was that the United United Provinces would serve as a nursery of puritanism and of sectary fugitives. And what was particularly worrying was the possibility that such men would uh, also become involved in printing seditious books. That's what people did in the Low Countries. Not least for distribution in England. And this was certainly true of uh, William Ames whose writings and publications had been troubling English officials and churchmen since at least 1612, but who was, quote, entertained and embraced at The Hague, where he was able to, quote, breed up the captains and soldiers there in mutiny and faction. And this situation only got worse as time passed. And by 1621, Sir John Ogle, an English commander um, in the Low Countries could complain that every man takes the liberty to himself to censure and control the actions of princes and print their boldness. In seeking to curb the production of these libelous pamphlets, the English government, however, encountered the problem that many of those involved, like the printer Richard Schilders, the clue is in the name, were Dutchmen. Again, soon, the, English, the, sorry, the Dutch authorities were naturally unwilling to act. And even, when Eng, Eng, sorry, even with Englishmen like William Brewster and Thomas Brewer, both involved in printing, even with them, it became clear that local officials were negligent in taking action and that English renegades were effectively protected. Brewer, for example, had privileges as a university man at Leiden, and as such, the English worried that, quote, remanding him into England as the king's own native subject would lead to disorder in this, uh, this tumultuous town. Such issues, illicit printing, and the protection of those responsible, remained problematic throughout the 17th century. And it proved extremely difficult to affect the arrest or banishment of all sorts of English Uh, dissidents who were, quote, in the state's service, or who had been made burgesses of Dutch towns, or even naturalized, as in the case of two controversial clerics, Hugh Peter in the 1630s, and Gilbert Burnett in the 1680s. In 1685, for example, Ambassador Skelton was informed that removing men who who had been made burgesses in the Dutch Republic was a major problem because, quote, the constitution of their government uh, was such that it could not well be remedied, especially if such status was granted before individuals had been declared fugitive. As the Dutch made only too clear, giving way on this issue would make it possible for the English king to outlaw all the English here, one after another, and make them traitors. Even with dissidents who had not been made burgesses, Skelton discovered that the Dutch tended to protect those who lived amongst them, in the sense that they might profess willingness um, to remove English fanatics, their term, only to water down their resolutions with reserving clauses. The English also encountered partial compliance, as they described it, on the part of local officials. They fell foul of confusing local regulations and even faced active resistance uh, in particular provinces and towns which considered themselves to be a commonwealth apart. Not to mention the fury of the rabble. Here too, orders to um, arrest notorious dissidents like the author of this pamphlet, um, the Whig plotter, Robert Ferguson, tended to, quote, pass through so many hands that they could not be kept secret, and plans must needs be discovered, thereby enabling Ferguson to escape. Such behavior prompted the conclusion that the Dutch tended to baffle and juggle as far as they can, to offer nothing more than fair promises, and to indulge in butterbox policy. In 1686, an incensed Ambassador Skelton claimed that the Dutch played fast and loose with me, and he sought a new posting there being nothing now to be done here. And at the heart of the problem with English dissidents um, was the fact that there were competing notions of citizenship. The Dutch claimed that decisions by the government in London to banish people from Britain served to, quote, extinguish their subjection and consequently His Majesty's right of declaring them rebels after they are banished and become subjects of another state. The English, on the other hand, claimed that naturalizing someone like Burnett did not free him from his allegiance to the king. Misseldon uh, recognized a wider problem caused by marriages between English men and Dutch women, whereby his majesty loseth his subjects. I think that such people, wore, such people were, for the most part, under no government. They were not under the kings for they profess to have left their country for that. But neither were they under the state's government because they are strangers and our language hard to be understood. And the problem was stated boldly in 1687 um, by this ambassador, or the ambassador who penned this memorial, uh, the Marquis d'Albeville, who recognized that, quote, the civil law and common law of England make a great difference in the constituting a citizen or a subject. Dutch civil law, he said, makes a citizen or subject anyone who hath a fixed or settled dwelling of what nation soever where he resides. English common law, on the other hand, quote, makes him or her a subject that is born within the said kingdom, and lets such a one go or dwell wherever they please, he or she may be cited with convenient time to appear in England and give an account of their carriage towards their liege sovereign. It being an axiom of the law of England that no distance or place alters the natural relation between the king and his subjects. Thus, whereas the English um, regarded Dutchmen who resided in England as being Dutch subjects, the Dutch treated the English who resided within their territories as their subjects as well, i.e. as much as were the Dutch. And thus beyond the reach of local officials. Now when sovereignty, the sovereignty of the kings of England um, was constrained in this way, successive English governments obviously needed to find ways of responding. And the awkward decisions that uh, ensued revealed some extremely interesting and surprising attitudes. One very obvious way of responding, of course, involved invoking friendship between the two nations, try and persuade them to do what we want because we are supposed to be friends. And requiring Dutch gratitude for English assistance since the mid 16th century. But another way was to indulge in more or less threatening and belligerent behavior. In trying to secure the conformity of English churches and ministers, therefore, English ambassadors drew attention to the privileged status of Dutch churches, like this one, Austin Friars, um, Dutch churches in England, and hinted that these privileges might fall into question. Some advocated hitting the Dutch where it hurt by taking steps to prevent Englishmen from traveling abroad, not least to study in Dutch universities, as thousands did, and to prevent Englishmen from trading with certain Dutch towns and even with specific merchants. At times, of course, the English also contemplated more forceful action. In response to the Amboya massacre and to the delays in securing justice, some felt that the king might be forced to take his satisfaction by impounding Dutch ships for that state intends not to give it a satisfaction in any real manner suitable to justice. The most obvious exponent of such tactics was the somewhat notorious Sir George Downing, whose um, muscular, shall we say, approach to diplomacy after 1660 involved arguing that these people will do nothing till compelled. Famously, Downing put such ideas into effect with what we might think of as the extraordinary rendition of three English regicides who had uh, had taken flights to the Low Countries. Downing recognized that going through the proper channels would prove more or less fruitless, for I know the humor of these people. And although he recognized that local Englishmen might not be willing to assist him, as have their livelihood and dependence in this country, and that they might indeed be pulled to pieces by the common people, he effectively duped the Dutch authorities to prevent all tricks and delays in the Office of Justice, and managed to stay one step ahead of the Dutch authorities, and indeed the mob, in order to convey the men back to their doom uh, in London. Downing boasted that such tactics were never known before, but the problem was that they generated wariness on the part of the Dutch authorities and hostility from the Dutch people, and it was a trick that was unlikely to work very often. Now, this is not to say that Towning ruled out snatching other uh, renegades. He was indeed eager to pursue the chase, not least because, and this is a direct quote, I promise you, Hanging is too good for them. (laughs) But even he recognised that employing lusty fellows to grab other rebels would make the town too hot for us, and that those involved would be stoned by the rabble. And also recognised that the Dutch authorities were going to be much more watchful, and that they would refuse to cooperate with any such uh, plans and ploys. Indeed, subsequent attempts to arrest old Republicans like George Joyce and Slingsby Bethel, also exiles in the Low Countries, these attempts met with rudeness and resistance. And the attempted uh, capture of the Whig plotter, Sir Robert Payton in 1686 was not only prevented by the rabble um, on the grounds that he was a Burgess of Amsterdam, but also resulted in the prosecution by the Dutch authorities of the English officers who had been involved in the attempt and a prosecution uh, put into effect, it was said, with utmost rigor and severity. So more interesting, it seems to me, than such bluster and such bluntness, were instances where English ambassadors showed a willingness to compromise and to work cooperatively. Sir William Boswell recognized that suppressing Puritan books in the 1630s might be considered an impossible work but he nevertheless made headway by proceeding, quote, according to the laws and statutes of the land by the magistrates and ministers of justice in the towns. In 1638, indeed, he sought to effect a mutual placard or official order involving reciprocal arrangements to prevent the production of illicit texts in both England and the Dutch Republic. And he also worked in concert um, with local uh, grandees like Johannes Maire. Uh, Uh, a minister in the Dutch Republic who was said to have hindered the publication of certain books in the very birth. Boswell was thus able to report that I proceed though slow yet sure and he managed to secure the censure not just of English renegades like the Puritan minister John Cam but also of Dutch citizens including the printer William Christians. Yet more striking are cases involving uh, uh, the Puritan minister, John Forbes, who had been banished from Scotland in 1606, and the English printer, Thomas Brewer. James I, therefore, only managed to secure the return of Forbes to England when the latter agreed to travel to England uh, willingly, voluntarily, and on the condition that he would not be imprisoned and that he could then return a free man to the low countries. Similarly, Brewer was only able to be questioned in England for his activities after the English ambassador, our old friend Dudley Carlton, agreed to various conditions imposed by the Dutch um, authorities to ensure that he would not be molested, either in body or goods or to punish him further than with a free confession of his own misdemeanors. Brewer was also to, to be accompanied on his journey by officials from Leiden University and he was neither to be imprisoned, nor quote, referred to the judgment of the bishops. And he too was to be allowed to return to the Low Countries. Now such an arrangement, brokered by Carlton, um, aggravated James I, who forced the ambassador to crave his pardon. But Carlton's response is illuminating. He pointed out that his accommodating approach reflected an appreciation of Dutch sensibilities regarding the protection of local privileges, as well as awareness of, quote, what Rob would have met with if he had pursued a more aggressive strategy. Carlton thus pointed out that, I hold it no service to His Majesty to entangle his affairs with difficulties when the end may be attained unto by a more facile and feasible way. In addition, the English, at least occasionally, invoked the concept of joint judicature as a direct means of challenging the sovereignty of one particular state. In pursuing pursuing justice for the Amboyna massacre, therefore, Sir Henry Vane questioned the way in which the Dutch attempted to insist on their sovereignty by demanding that Dutch officials should interrogate English witnesses in The Hague. And they advocated instead the idea of joint judicature as a kind of sharing of sovereign power. Even the truculent and combative Downing began to think more creatively. Devising a plan for drawing people from the United Provinces into England by making all Protestant immigrants as natural born subjects. In doing so, he effectively signalled a willingness to rethink English notions of citizenship. Other instances are equally revealing. The attempt to secure English representation on the Dutch Council of State. The idea for a collaborative Anglo-Dutch venture to establish what we called, somewhat uh, bizarrely Scottish Houses of Entertainment, the, the mind boggles. <laughs> as far as I can gather, um, this was an attempt Um, which would have enabled Scottish fanatics, uh, Scottish Puritan preachers, to worship as they pleased, thereby satisfying the Dutch and their toleration, while also placing them under a degree of surveillance, thereby pleasing James II. More striking still is the fact that the problems caused by exiled dissidents in the Low Countries helped to promote um, English Republicans in the 1650s to propose a more strict and intimate alliance and union. This is the failed union attempt of the early 1650s. It was this kind of thinking which also led to arrangements for the management of other practical issues where both countries were concerned, such as the postal service in the late 17th century. Where by the end of the century, we see a clear example of the way in which it was possible to find ways of developing political and administrative protocols by pooling sovereignty. It would, of course, um, as I proceed to uh, wrap things up, it would, of course, be rash to push this kind of argument too far. It is impossible <laughs> uh, to deny that Anglo Dutch relations deteriorated to the point of open warfare on more than one occasion. <laughs> that the alliances into which the two states entered were short lived and unproductive, and that the treaties they signed were not always worth the paper that they were written on. It is also true that the Anglo-Dutch relationship was more or less unusual, grounded as it was in shared Protestantism, trading instincts, overseas expansion, and given that it involved a kind of special relationship which dated back to the Dutch revolt in the 16th century. Nevertheless, it seems clear that we can at least reconsider Anglo-Dutch relations in the 17th century and find ways of connecting the pictures that emerge from traditional diplomatic history and more recent scholarship on cultural history and cultural exchange. Central here is evidence of the educative role of political engagement with the Dutch and of the need to move beyond the idea that it seems to me that we need to move beyond the idea that that learning from the Dutch in the 17th century involved wanting to emulate uh, their political system and of seeking to catch up with the Dutch, much more advanced as they were, by imitation now, elsewhere, um, I want to argue that there were, in fact, contemporaries in England who saw in the Dutch Republic an inspiring political culture and a transferable constitutional model. But for now, I want to uh, stress that many English politicians and diplomats learned from their experiences of Dutch politics in different ways, in the sense that they found Dutch politics instructive for developing the art of politics. For the most astute of them, indeed, such on-the-job learning needed to be undertaken hand-in-hand with their reading of the most astute political scientists, as we might think of them, um, that they knew, from Machiavelli um, to Philippe de Commenares. Dutch politics, in other words, was good to think with, and what seems undeniable is that this political education ensured that the attitudes of English politicians towards at least one European neighbour were capable of developing in interesting directions in the sense that contemporaries were determined to comprehend the Dutch, to understand their unusual political system, and to incorporate what they discovered into their own political practice. Even if this emerged from the desire to advance English interests, it also involved recognizing that the two countries had become socially, culturally, and economically intertwined, and that there were trans-territorial phenomena which needed to be appreciated including English soldiers on continental battlefields, international Protestantism, and interlocking business communities. In this situation, the English revealed something other than a straightforward determination to protect national sovereignty and showed a willingness to participate in Dutch institutions, to work through Dutch constitutional channels, and to cooperate with the Dutch authorities. Now, this did not involve visions of European cooperation and integration that were clearly theorized, or particularly enlightened, perhaps, as uh, as they would become in the 18th century, for at least some people. However, it certainly involved a willingness to think beyond national sovereignty and what we might think of as a pragmatically European outlook, something which is particularly clear if we transfer our attention from contemporary debates about the sovereignty of the seeds to sovereignty on dry land. This makes it possible, not just to supplement scholarly emphasis on the question of universal monarchy as a theme which preoccupied them, and absolutism as another theme that occupied people's minds in the late 17th century, but also to join those, who challenged the idea that the 17th century witnessed the emergence of an international system based on sovereign states with exclusive spheres of influence. Who refrained from interfering in each other's domestic affairs, but rather checked each other's ambitions by means of the balance of power. There are hints, in other words, that contemporaries moved beyond the so called Westphalian system or the Westphalian model as soon as it came into being. Now, in time, I plan to develop this idea much further, that's the aim, and to suggest that there is yet more to be gleaned from Carlton's interest in Dutch popular politics. This will involve arguing that recognizing the importance of popular politics to the Dutch system prompted English officials to adopt a remarkably accommodating response to a situation where almost every common man is a statesman, not just by monitoring Dutch public opinion, but also by trying to shape it, by participating in the Dutch public sphere through the medium of print and journalism. In doing so, they sought to address and persuade the boys who went about plucking hens to make political statements in the streets of Utrecht, and to influence the decisions of those principals to whom the Dutch political elite was so obviously beholden. That, however, is a story for another occasion.
2: Well, appropriately enough, I'm a stranger here, and I'm observing uh, customs I don't fully understand. But I understand (laughs) two things about my role here. One is that I'm not actually uh, uh, supposed to invite a vote, although there's no question about the outcome of such a vote, should there be one. Also, that I stand between not only an excellent lecture, but also as a country boy up from uh, uh, Yorkshire to uh, the big smoke, what will no doubt be excellent wine. (laughs) And the shorter the time I spend between you uh, and those two excellent treats, the better. However, I do want to take a few moments to reflect on Jason's work work and and what I've learned from it. I I am genuinely very flattered to have been asked to do this. I uh, think I speak for many people in the room in saying that I've learned an enormous amount from Jason directly and indirectly over the years. He's a man of tremendously wide... I uh, will uh, just pause a moment there. <laughs> Knowledge, which he, which he's, uh, 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 it, it, with which he's extremely generous, and uh, uh, he's unfailingly polite and helpful in answers to questions of the most minute and trivial detail. Uh, but also to questions, much larger questions of interpretation. And so I, I, I'm honoured to uh, be offering this vote of thanks and, to, and a little alarmed by having to offer some kind of appreciation of uh, Jason's work over the years. Uh, but I want to start with his work on the English Revolution. At the time when uh, Jason started work on the English Revolution, the historiography had splinters between uh, political history, very engaged with... Uh, reconstructing the course of events, a social history which had largely turned its back on the revolution, and an intellectual history which proceeded through a contextual analysis which saw the context as lying in other texts rather than the larger political world. Jason started work on uh, Henry Parker, I had to check the first name with him I'll admit just before the (laughs) lecture, under the tension. Henry Parker, who's been written about as one of the key contributors to what's known as the paper war on the outbreak of the English Civil War. But Parker has been written mainly in terms of uh, intellectual history and Jason's attempt to understand what made Parker possible, what made it possible for Parker to say these things, to arrive at these ideas, to publicize and circulate them, has led him into a much broader reconsideration of the political culture of early modern England through its print and communicative practices, and how those stimulated and fostered and enabled intellectual innovation of all sorts uh, of uh, exciting kinds. And I think that's been a signal contribution to our understanding of the dynamics of the revolution, but it's also been an extremely important historiographical moment for 17th century history. The the finding, the the way in which he's found new ways of reintegrating those uh, disparate uh, historiographies. And one thing you might say that that amounted to is writing politics as they spilled out of uh, the institutions of national government, uh, how it was no longer possible to constrain debate within uh, the formal structures of the British state and and, uh, a recovery of the social depth of political engagement in early modern England. And I think... Uh, that's uh, not in too lame a way, a continuity announcement to the new work which shows how those politics spilled out of the institutions of English government in a geographical sense too. There was a time when the English revolution was regarded as an important issue in comparative history. Um, That moment has passed for the time being, but there is an attempt to write it as part of a connected history instead. But those connections have normally been sought through the rest of Britain and Ireland and across the Atlantic. I think this is a very important move to see how English politics spilled out of England and were connected with a wider European politics and indeed how those European politics drew on English uh, political dynamics. So I think this is going to be another very important moment in the historiography and one I'm very excited to hear more about. One final uh, observation, I think, is that the uh, final uh, is, is finishing um, a shot, really, that the Westphalian system was over before it started, is uh, important for our institutional history of international relations. I think the new global history leaves institutions out, and we are not well-equipped for understanding how institutions operated in an international world. But I also think it's important uh, for refiguring British history as a participant in a wider world history. And I think there's an urgent need for our political, our public discussion now to engage with how British history has not been self-determining and self-contained uh, and how it's always been engaged in wider dialogues with wider communities uh, internationally and across the globe. So in both ways, I think this promises to be a really important move for British historiography, and it's the second major move with which Jason has been uh, associated. I did want to say, I missed this out, but I will say it, uh, one remarkable feature of Jason's work, and it's been manifest again today, is how it's been driven from the archive. He served a stern apprenticeship in the (laughs) History of Parliament Trust. The History of Parliament has contributed far more to the historiography of the early modern period than the name would suggest, and Jason's career is one illustration of that. Uh, But uh, uh, to say that someone has magnificent archival command is even among historians not always a compliment. But in Justin's case, I do know his name, Jason's case, it's definitely true that his archival command empowers and enables imaginative history. He's led by the archive, he's grounded in the archive, but he is not limited to the archive. And I think we've seen that again tonight in a rich, densely illustrated, but conceptually interesting paper. So I hope that you'll join me in thanking Jason for that wonderful lecture, which offers a new prospect for what should be an extremely stimulating uh, round of work in a new direction.